Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Cloud9Fin. Thanks for joining us wherever you are. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and I literally just got back from my summer vacation yesterday. So this week, I handed the podcast reins over to Bill Weisbrod, who recently joined our US team as a deputy editor. For his Cloud9Fin debut, he had a great chat with John Fraser, who heads up global structured credit at TKO Capital. So without further ado, here it is. Thanks for joining us, John. Uh, My pleasure, Bill. Thank you for inviting me. Starting off generally, how would you describe your overall investing strategy given the current rising rate environment? Well, I would say that fundamentally, nothing has really changed. We have historically always been relatively conservative investors. We believe that by focusing on fundamental credit quality and and avoiding mistakes, we can drive the types of returns that we strive to deliver for our investors. Having said that, there are a number of things that I think we and many investors should be emphasizing given the current environment of some amount of economic weakness and rising rates. Uh, First, we focus on companies that have modest leverage and significant cash fixed charge coverage cushions. And by that, I mean the ability to service their debt and continue to reinvest in their business with a comfortable cushion against either a downturn in their business or rates rising even more from where they are today. We're looking for companies that we believe will be significantly or at least somewhat recession resistant. We want to be involved in companies that we think can weather a storm and ultimately come out on the other side in good financial standing. Uh, We want to be investing in companies that have pricing power, that can deal with the inflationary environment in which we find ourselves today and pass on the increased cost that they're experiencing to their customers or clients. Uh, We think variable cost structures that can be managed to reduce costs during more difficult times are quite important. And then finally, I would say that as always, we want to be lending to companies that have tenured, experienced, and successful management teams with a proven ability to manage through more difficult environments. Any sectors you're focused on or staying away from these days? Well, on the positive side, meaning industry sectors that we currently think makes sense, given the environment in which we find ourselves, we're looking for defensive, non-cyclical, committed recurring revenue streams. We often find these with companies that are in consumer staples sectors, which can include food and beverage producers, distributors, or retailers. Uh, certain types of business and consumer services that have high recurring revenue streams, often under long-term committed contracts, manufacturers, distributors, and retailers of non-durable products 
often products that uh, wear out over time and need to be replaced according to a fairly regular and easily determinable schedule. A technology that, again, is operated or sold under long-term contracts with recurring revenue streams, and healthcare services businesses that do not depend exclusively on government reimbursement. And I note that because we all know that the government is increasingly focused on trying to drive down the cost of medical care. And we want to avoid companies in the healthcare industry that are subject to that type of cost pressure. On the negative side, meaning companies that we generally steer clear of, particularly in a more challenging environment, we are right now de-emphasizing leisure, particularly higher-end leisure companies, uh, hotels and cruise, cruise ship lines being examples of that, durable consumer goods, i.e. goods that uh, last a very long time and may not have easily definable replacement cycles, commodities, particularly energy, oil, gas, and coal, because of the volatility in the underlying commodities that those companies produce or in which they deal, and real retailers that are exposed to either or both of highly discretionary spending and fashion risk. But having said all that, I would note that we are also open to considering investing in a wide variety of companies in virtually any uh, part of the economic, the economic cycle. Um, as long as a company is a leader in its business, and displays the characteristics that I mentioned with my summary of our strategy for investing in the current environment, even if it's in an industry sector that may be out of favor or, or overly exposed, as long as there are inherent protections for our investment, we will consider investing in that company as long as we feel that the return receive, we receive is appropriate for the level of risk. What would be an example of a non-durable product? Well, so for a manufact an example of a manufacturer of a non-durable consumer good, uh, I think a perfect example of that is uh, an aftermarket auto parts company that sells products that tend to need to be replaced on a fairly regular scale uh, schedule. A good example of that would be tires. Another example of that would be engine parts that need like filters and things like that that need to be replaced fairly regularly. You know, again, you could you could delay your auto maintenance a little bit in a tougher environment. But it's not something you want to delay indefinitely because the ramifications are significant and very costly repair bills down the road. And what about in healthcare? Well, one of the subsectors we like the best are healthcare service companies that are 
somehow involved in the administrative or payments process standing between providers of medical services and the ultimate payers, whether it be insurance companies or state or federal governments. These types of businesses are focused on reducing costs and streamlining reimbursement. And because of that focus, are generally considered very important to both of their, uh, their constituencies, the provider of the services and the payers. And those businesses, which generally sort of bridge between healthcare and technology, we think can often meet the characteristics that I highlighted earlier for good, solid, defensive businesses that in some cases can even thrive during a more difficult environment where there's renewed focus on costs. To your point of a rising cost environment, do you think inflation is slowing after the latest CPI print? I think it's slowing, but I think that some of the causes of the current inflationary environment are not going to disappear overnight. Uh, one of those is the well-publicized issues with the supply chain. Supply chains have been disrupted globally and are going to take time to iron out. Some of it is um, the cost of commodities that skyrocketed early on in the onset of inflation. And in some cases, may be abating, as we're seeing with the cost of oil, but that's not happening across the board. Food inflation is still very real, and again, is something that I think is likely to take some time to work through the system and abate. I do believe that the Fed is doing the right thing to try to tamp down inflation, uh, raising interest rates, and making the cost of capital more expensive forces consumers, whether they be individuals or businesses or organizations, to think twice about uh, the cost of their capital and how they spend it. And that should ultimately have the desired impact of bringing inflation down from rates that um, I haven't seen since I was much younger in the 70s and that many people today have never seen in their lifetimes. How would you expect those market dynamics to impact capital structures for upcoming LBOs? Well, it certainly forces private equity firms to rethink their approach to buying companies. When capital was extraordinary extraordinarily cheap, uh, they could pay very high, high multiples uh, on the bet that over time a company would go grow into its capital structure and that they would be able to repay significant debt loads uh, 
with the cash flow that was thrown off by that growth or by selling the company for equally high or even higher multiples at some point down the road. You know, now their return assumptions have to be even more focused on the fundamental strengths of a target company. They need to be willing to inject more equity capital into the new deal structure than they might have in the past. But at the end of the day, the offset to that is that valuations are lower and they should be able to make deals work uh, with less debt, given that they have to pay less for these companies. I do not think that we're going to see the private equity world uh, turned upside down by increasing interest rates or by an economic recession. Private equity companies have weathered these types of storms in the past and done so quite successfully. And the reality is they have enormous amounts of dry powder at their disposal and are raising more capital on a regular basis. And they are incentivized to put that capital to work. So while we may see a bit of a slowdown, I don't think we're going to see the marketplace grind to a halt. When will we see the CLO machine ramp up and start driving primary loan issuance? Well, the, the real, reality, Bill, is the CLO machine has never turned off. It has slowed somewhat from last year's record $160 billion plus of issuance, but CLOs keep getting printed and the demand from CLOs continues. Year to date, I think the number is around $90 billion of CLO issuance. Uh, that's still a pretty healthy number. If you go back three or four years, 120 to 130 billion of CLO issuance was a significant amount and would have been a record in the pre-pandemic era. To be at 90 billion year to date, it's highly likely that we will exceed 100 billion quite easily. And we're going to see continued demand from CLOs for loans. That's the primary reason why we have seen loan prices rally from a low of just under 91 cents on the dollar in June to today just shy of 95 cents on the dollar. And that's even in the face of outflows from retail funds. So the CLO machine continues to grind on, and I feel like it's going to continue to do so to a greater or lesser degree as we move through the balance of the year. I've been hearing about relative value of secondary trading opportunities, especially earlier this year when prices were lower, dampening some demand for new issue. Where do you see that dynamic at present? Well, I think there's always fluctuation in the relative value between new issue and secondary at any given point as you move through the year. Uh, I would agree that secondary was very attractive in June when prices hit their lows. 
Since then, demand from CLOs has pushed secondary prices up to the point where I think we're going to see new issues that are going to represent equal or perhaps even slightly better value. Now, right now, the last half of August, things are, are seasonally slow. But as we move into September and the balance of the year, I think we're going to see new issuance pick up. Some of that will be loans that have been on underwriters' books for the last several months, going back to the first half of the year. Most of that is LBOs that were inked earlier in the year. Those deals will come to market. They will need to offer some concessions to the secondary market in order to clear, but not the type of concessions that we were hearing about as recently as two months ago, where some new issues were clearing the market at OIDs of greater than 10 points or at prices below 90 cents on the dollar. How attractive is the U.S. market for European CLO managers? Well, I think that the primary reason why some traditionally European managers are looking to the U.S. is that it represents a potential significant growth opportunity for their businesses. We all know that the European market is significantly smaller than the U.S. marketplace by a factor of four or five times. The opportunities for growth tend to be more limited, and the modest proliferation of new managers in Europe means that it has become increasingly competitive in a much smaller arena. So it's natural for them to look beyond the European borders to expand their businesses. They bring with them, in some cases, unique access to capital that can be used to support growth in a new marketplace. And in most cases, access to resources that are already in place that can be leveraged to grow into the U.S. market on a cost-effective basis. So I think it's not surprising that we are seeing some European managers come this way as opposed to exclusively seeing U.S. managers head east. And it's something that I think uh, on a modest scale will continue. What are some challenges for European CLO managers coming to the U.S.? Well, the market dynamics are somewhat different. Uh, execution in the U.S. tends to occur much more rapidly than it does in Europe on both the asset side and the liability side of the CLO balance sheet. That requires being nimble and flexible and having the capacity to take advantage of opportunities. Uh, developing a following among U.S. investors can be somewhat of a challenge. That's why bringing uh, existing resources, particularly investor resources from Europe, is critical to being able to achieve success over in this marketplace. Well, thanks, John. That's all the time we've got for this week. My pleasure, Bill. 
Okay, well, we've reached the end of the road again for another week. Thanks again to John and to Bill for taking over. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it and share it. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. If European markets are more your thing, make sure to tune in next week to hear from our colleagues over in London. I'll be back again the week after that to cover what's going on in the US. So until then, as always, take care.